Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Well, we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're taking it back to the, uh, the later era of Indiana Jones, the mid-90s, when everyone is starting to get back into that like thrall of tomb raiding, some might say, and exploring and having that, that, that kind of like notion of exploring far lands. And we see this in today's game topic with Tomb Raider. Yeah, Tomb Raider, a lot of fun. Obviously iconic, I think, almost to a memeing point just because of how the original uh, protagonist was designed in Laura Croft. Um, mm-hmm. Very blocky, but very obviously designed to be um, suggestive and was a fantasy, I think, for, I guess, the, the video gaming type of people. For a long time, but it's funny to look at now and and go back and see that and think that was the pinnacle of technology at some point. But yeah, (laughs) um, everyone recognizes, I think, Tomb Raider, at least for that, if not for the gameplay. But of course, we're going to talk about that today because that's what really matters in these video games. And Tomb Raider obviously went on to spawn a movie franchise. It spawned many other uh, successful games in the franchise. So I'm excited about this one. Absolutely. Let's dive into it. Tomb Raider is a 1996 action-adventure video game developed by Core Design and published by Eidos Interactive. It was first released on the Sega Saturn, followed shortly by versions for MS-DOS and the PlayStation. Later releases came for Mac OS, Pocket PC, the N-Gage, iOS, and Android. It is a debut entry in the Tomb Raider media franchise. The game follows archaeologist adventurer Laura Croft who is hired by businesswoman Jacqueline Notla to find an artifact called the Scion of Atlantis. Gameplay features Laura navigating levels split into multiple areas and room complexes while fighting enemies and solving puzzles to progress. The initial concept was created by Toby Gard, who is credited as as Laura's creator and worked as lead artist on the project. Production began in 1994 and took 18 months with a budget of 440,000 pounds. The character of Lara was based on several influences, including Tank Girl and Indiana Jones. The 3D grid-based level design, innovative for its time, was inspired by the structure of Egyptian tombs. The music was composed by Nathan McCree, who took inspiration from English classical music. And originally announced in 1995, the title went on to receive extensive press attention and heavy promotion from Eidos Interactive. Reception of the game was very positive, with praise for its innovative 3D graphics, controls, and gameplay, and it went on to win several industry awards. 
The game is one of the best-selling video games for the PlayStation, with 7 million units sold worldwide, and it remained the best-selling title in the Tomb Raider franchise until the release of the 2013 reboot. Laura Croft herself became a cultural icon, rising to prominence as one of gaming's most recognizable characters. Following the game's success, numerous sequels were released, beginning with Tomb Raider 2 in 1997. A remake set in a new continuity, Tomb Raider Anniversary, was developed by Crystal Dynamics and released in 2007. So I think starting this off talking about, yes, kind of a cultural icon. Um, one of really the first super iconic female protagonists that has continued on and has, has built upon that. And again, in the 2013 reboot, we see a whole new take on Laura, um, very much that we kind of see with God of War and, and various other IPs that uh, Sony has kind of worked with to almost bring a grittier version later on and, and, and build on what Laura built in 97 in this original franchise. And we see it, like you said, like in the movies and in like comics and various other outlets that brought this to huge attention. And I definitely think, yeah, bringing up the fact that this is a female protagonist is important because this is really a period in time where gaming is a male-dominated, I think, hobby. Mm -hmm. And as time has gone on, obviously, there's been more things done in the gaming industry to make it more inclusive for all different kinds of people. Yeah. And that's really important. But at the time, yes, having Lara Croft exist as the protagonist, I think, is significant. Obviously, I joked around a little bit at the beginning just about how it was sort of a... It had male audiences sort of fawning over her. And then, of course, having Angelina Jolie be the protagonist for the film series sort of just reinforces that whole idea. But this game made it okay to have a female protagonist you know, regardless of all that other stuff. And I feel like its success led the way for other games in the future. But that's sort of getting ahead of everything. Let's talk about the studio that put it all together. So based in the city of Derby, England, Core Design was founded in 1988 by Chris Shrigley, Andy Green, Rob Toon, Terry Lloyd, Simon Phipps, Dave Pridmore, Jeremy Heath-Smith, Kevin Norburn, and Greg Holmes. Most were former employees of Gremlin Graphics. The studio was part of distribution company Centergold when it was acquired by Eidos Interactive in 1996. Keith Smith regarded the acquisition as a relief, commenting, quote, The funding of development is so expensive that I doubt we could have continued to fund ourselves as an independent company. Eidos subsequently sold most of Center Gold, but retained U.S. Gold, the owners of Core Design. The company is widely known for the Tomb Raider series. The first game was created by Toby Gard and Paul Douglas, released in 1996, and followed by several sequels. The success of the first Tomb Raider has been credited with making Eidos Interactive a major force in the industry, and turned Eidos's 1996 pre-tax loss of $2.6 million into a $14.5 million profit. In September 1997, Sony Computer Entertainment's U.S. arm, SCEA, signed an agreement with Eidos to keep the franchise exclusive to the PlayStation console. The deal was extended to include Tomb Raider 3. Fourth and fifth games in the franchise, Tomb Raider The Last Revelation, and Tomb Raider Chronicles, respectively, followed. 
After the critical failure of Tomb Raider, The Angel of Darkness in 2003, parent company Eidos put Crystal Dynamics, another Eidos-owned studio, in charge of Tomb Raider franchise development. This prompted members of the core design management team and development staff to leave the company and establish a new company, Circle Studio. In May 2006, Eidos announced that independent developer Rebellion Developments had acquired core design's assets and staff, while the core brand and intellectual property, including Tomb Raider, remained in Eidos' possession. In June 2006, Crystal Dynamics was confirmed to have a PSP anniversary edition of the original Tomb Raider in development. Remnants of the core design team, under the banner of Rebellion, went on to work on several titles in years since, including Shellshock 2, Blood Trails, and Rogue Warrior. Starting in January 2010, due to an expiring lease on Rebellion Derby's offices, Rebellion Developments started seeking restructuring opportunities for the studio. As no other possibility than closure was found, Rebellion Derby was closed down effective on March 17, 2010. But in a positive note, in July 2010, shortly after their closure, a nearby road in Derby was named Laura Croft Way in honor of the studio's contribution to the creative industries. So, unfortunately, a somewhat short-lived, when we're talking about like these huge companies that have lasted forever and gone through a bunch of different developments creating games, um, you know, we see, unfortunately, this is the life of a lot of studios, but it is cool to see it kind of live on in Derby, um, being like the host to this huge franchise and as it continues forward. Definitely. And even though that studio was short-lived, obviously Tomb Raider still exists today. It's something that I think the people that created that can be really proud of. Unfortunately, a lot of times I think in the industry, you have to be able to, sure, find success, especially initially in, in some sort of gaming title, but your ability to continue successfully making that franchise while it's important can't be the only thing. You have to be able to, I think, extend yourself into other gaming franchises if you can. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we talk about these studios that start off really small, sort of becoming parent studios for other games. Yeah. And sort of acting in that capacity and, and funders and similar to how like a Sony would be for them. So they just unfortunately weren't able to do it, but that's how it goes a lot of the times. Yeah, and it, it is unfortunate, but again, we do see at least their IP revived in you know 2013 and continuing on with also the revival of the bow and arrow. And that could be a whole other chapter <laughs> in and of itself of 2013, the arrow, an era of the bow and arrow. <laughs> that was definitely, um, if you were on the internet at all, on Reddit, Twitter, whatever, there was definitely a lot of memes going around about how every single game had the bow and arrow. 100% forgot about that till you said that just now, but that was definitely a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. The initial concept for Tomb Raider was created by Toby Gard, who worked for Core Design, a game development studio based in Derby, England, that had established itself developing titles for home computers and Sega consoles. It was proposed by Gard to company head Jeremy Heath Smith during a 1994 brainstorming session for game concepts for the upcoming PlayStation console. The entire staff approved, and Heath Smith gave Gard permission to start the project once he finished work on BC Racers for the Sega CD. The game concept was created before anything else, with the main hooks being its cinematic presentation and being a 3D character-driven experience. The initial team was Gard and Paul Douglas, who worked on design and pre-production for six months, 
before the team expanded to six people, including programmers Gavin Rummery and Jason Gosling, and level designers and artists Neil Boyd and Heather Gibson. The team wanted to mix the adventuring style of Ultima Underworld and the 3D characters shown off in Virtua Fighter. The development budget for the game at the time was approximately 440,000 pounds. The production atmosphere was fairly informal. Development began in 1994 and lasted 18 months. The team endured excessive overtime and crunch during the last stages, and during production, core design was sold to Center Gold, which in turn was purchased by Eidos Interactive in May 1996, who became the publisher for the title. When Guard first presented the idea for the game, the concept art featured a male lead who strongly resembled Indiana Jones. Heath Smith asked for a change for legal reasons. Pretty obvious. When Guard created the initial design document, he decided to give the player a choice of genders and created a female adventurer alongside the male counterpart. Once he realized creating and animating two playable characters would require double the design work, he decided to slim back down to one. And it's kind of like, ooh, you know, if I gotta make two things, I gotta do two of everything, yeah, let's just do one. That sounds good. The female character, originally named Laura Cruz, was his favorite, so he discarded the male character before development work began. After Eidos became the game's publisher, they unsuccessfully lobbied for a selectable male lead. Speaking about his approach to the concept, Gard noted that he deliberately went against publisher trends when designing both the character and the gameplay. Laura went through several changes before the developers settled on the final version, including a name change to Laura Croft after Eidos executives in America objected to the original name. The inspirations for the character of Laura Croft include the character Tank Girl, the Indiana Jones series titular lead, and the John Woo movie Hard Boiled. Laura's notably exaggerated physical proportions were a deliberate choice by Guard, as he wanted a caricatured personification of women who could be an action icon for the younger generation. Laura's movements were hand-animated and coordinated rather than created using motion capture. The reason for this was that the team wanted uniformity in her movement, which was not possible with mocap technology at the time. From the game's earliest stages, the team wanted the title to involve tombs and pyramids. In the early story draft, Laura would be confronted by a rival group called the Chaos Raiders. During the Greece levels, Laura and Pierre were to have been less hostile rivals, helping each other with puzzles in the first level. Larson evolved from an African's character called Lars Kruger, who shared a similar role in the original plot. The script itself was written by Vicki Arnold, who joined in 1995 and would later work on Tomb Raider titles. Gard and Douglas created the basic story draft, alongside the initial game design. Then, Arnold turned it into a script after joining the project. It was Arnold's job to write the dialogue and create a cohesive narrative around the locations selected by the team members. While Laura's character design and Guard's initial concept were present, much of the additional detail was worked out by Arnold. The team kept the project deliberately simple and comparatively modest in scope. The platforming design drew extensively from Prince of Persia, with the doppelganger enemy during the Atlantis section being an homage to the Shadow Prince from that game. The high number of animal enemies was meant to ground players in the world before the more fantastical elements appeared, in addition to being easier to animate and program than human enemies. The staff were also uncomfortable with Lara killing that many humans. The initial concept 
gave combat prominence, but as production began, the focus shifted to platforming and puzzle solving. A plan that made it into the final product was using enemy placement to shift the atmosphere from pure action-adventure to a horror-like tone. The team consciously set the story in real archaeological locations, representing several cultures. Boyd and Gibson immersed themselves in literature and history about each culture for the first three areas, respectively inspired by the Inca Empire, Classical Greece, and Ancient Egypt. The Greece levels were put in after planned levels in Angkor Wat, Cambodia, were dropped. The Croft Manor training level was built by guard over a weekend. Its design was based on pictures of Georgian manor houses taken from an unspecified reference book. See, guys, this is how I know that you're going to be small time because you didn't take this opportunity to go on a vacation. Mm-hmm, this is what mm-hmm. yeah, this see. is the difference between the early gaming developers who lasted and the ones that didn't. You got to using books. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Books. What? No, man. You got a private jet. Go to the zoo. Bring a <laughs> bring a microphone. I don't know. Is it going to help you? Uh, who knows? Who knows? But the budget's worth it. <laughs> so the title was actually originally developed for Sega Saturn, MS-DOS Personal Computers, or PC, and PlayStation, with all three versions in development simultaneously. Gosling led programming for the Saturn version. Douglas described the game code for each title as identical, with an additional layer of specific coding to tailor the game for each platform. While Sony Europe approved the game early on, making Tomb Raider one of the earliest approved third-party products for the PlayStation, Sony America initially rejected the game's concept and asked for more and better content. Douglas blamed the response on core design submitting Tomb Raider too early in production. In response, the development team made several changes to the game design documentation and produced a version on Sony hardware, which would lead to worldwide approval by Sony. For the Saturn version, Sega negotiated a timely exclusivity deal in Europe, causing the Saturn version to release in that region ahead of other versions. Core Design and Sega made the deal during the last few months of development, so the team had to finish up the Saturn version six weeks earlier than they had planned, forcing them to work even longer hours. And you know the design and programming teams were told none of this (laughs) until they're like, hey guys, remember how. It's six more weeks to work on this. Uh, yeah. Can you crunch that down into like two? Be cool with that? <laughs> like, you know, they like everyone just cursing them like, hey, but guess what? Pizza parties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pizza parties, baby. I mean, this is going to be so fun. A team bonding experience. And the success of the future of the company depends on it. This, what you do today will last forever. Yeah. But (laughs) the plus side of it is that when you put a game out this early, you get to work on some bugs for the other ones. It's true. This is like a beta, basically. Yeah, that's basically it. You're basically working on a beta version for the other ones. Because following the release of the Saturn version, a number of bugs were discovered that affected all versions of the game. Because of the timed exclusivity, the development team fixed these bugs for the PlayStation and PC versions. Two notable surviving bugs in all versions were the corner bug, which allowed players to scale architecture by jumping repeatedly against a corner, which, if you've watched any speedruns of this, that's a huge strat. 
And then we also had a bug which caused the game to not recognize the collection of a secret in the final level. In 1997, Core Design opened negotiations with Nintendo to release an N64 version of the game and started work on the port in anticipation of the negotiations being successful. The planning took place between 96 and 97, with Douglas wanting to redesign the game mechanics to incorporate the platform's analog stick controls. The team never received N64 development kits, and the port was scrapped when Sony finalized a deal to keep subsequent Tomb Raider games exclusive to the PlayStation until the year 2000. A third-person 3D action-adventure like Tomb Raider was unprecedented at the time, and the development team took several months to find a way to make Guard's vision for the game work on the hardware of the time, in particular getting the player character to interact with freeform environments. Tomb Raider used a custom-built game engine, as did many games of the era, and the engine was designed and built by Douglas with assistance from Rummery. Rummery created the level editor, which allowed for seamless creation of levels. And according to Rummery, the decision to build the game levels on a grid was the key breakthrough in making the game possible. It is Core Design's contention that, prior to the development of Tomb Raider, they were struggling somewhat with 32-bit development. The level editor program was designed so that developers could make rapid adjustments to specific areas with ease. Another noted aspect was the multi-layered levels, as compared to equivalent 3D action-adventure games of the time, which were mostly limited to a flat floor system with little verticality. The interleaking room design was inspired by Egyptian multi-room tombs, particularly the tomb of Tutankhamun. The grid-based pattern was a necessity due to the D-pad-based tank controls and the Saturn's quad-polygon-based rendering technology. Levels were first designed using a wireframe construction, with each area at this stage having only links to other areas of a level and walls. The team then added architecture and gameplay elements like traps and enemies, then implemented the different lighting values. Due to time and technical limitations, planned outdoor areas had to be cut. The choice of a third-person perspective was influenced by the team's opinion that the game type was underrepresented when compared to first-person shooters such as Doom. The third-person view meant multiple elements were difficult to implement, including the character and camera control. The camera had four preset angles, which seamlessly switched depending on the character's position and the level progress. For standard navigation and combat, the camera was fixed on a particular point and oriented around Lara while focusing on that object. Lara's twin pistol setup was in place from the early prototypes. The aiming system was designed so that each gun arm had an aiming axis, with a shared sweet spot where both guns fired at the same target. For underwater environments, the effects were created using goo rod shading to create real-time ripple and lighting effects. And so you see where Doom just influenced so many games, I think, of this era, where everyone, mm -hmm. even if you weren't trying to make a first-person shooter, you're still influenced by the success of Doom, because it's hard, I think, to ignore all the elements that made that game successful and not want to at least take some of them and try and implement them into your own game. Well, and, and like you said, them trying to compete in an FPS market that's already being flooded at this point in 96, it's 
or I guess 94 during development. But even then, like you still had a lot of games that are that are trying this first person aspect out. One, it makes it easier to design characters because you don't have to see the character. The character can just be doing its own thing. You're basically moving a camera around and having the HUD and on-screen elements do stuff. Now you're having to fully design this character, fully program them, somehow get these like third-person guns to work out really well, like doing a Kimbo style, and then also make interesting platforming. And then also adding in water and all these other little elements that that added into it. And it really was revolutionary at the time. I remember... In the mansion level, there's a pool, so you can practice out the the water element of it. And I, at a young age, never played this, but my cousins had it when I visit them out of state, and they would play it. I was like, this is the coolest thing at the time. Like, just what you can do, the jumping animations of it, like doing these puzzles. It, it was really neat to do. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, there were still no standards when it came to game engines or or having you know a studio make an engine they kind of farmed out so it's like well we want to do this it's not done yet we got to make it and it's really interesting i feel like this game as far as the animations go actually they look pretty good even by today's standards Mm -hmm. there's just as many i think weird wonky movement type issues in modern games um as there are in this one and if you haven't played this or seen someone play it i mean i recommend just go and watch some gameplay videos because just watching all the details that they put into having her jump animation alone um all the moving yes. pieces it's really fascinating yeah to make it click and and feel correct and yeah you do see that prince of persia pull um and and just the in, the ingeniousness the ingenuity I should say um from them creating this game with so little memory within uh, Prince of Persia to take on a lot of that homage to it is, is really cool in that kind of raiding of the tombs style, we might even call it Tomb Raider, um, is, is very neat. So even on that aspect we're talking about, I want to get into the gameplay. Um, it's, it's simplistic to a note, but there's brevity to it. So obviously in Tomb Raider, you take on the role of archaeologist adventurer Lara Croft who navigates through a series of ancient runes and tombs in search of an ancient artifact. The game is split into four zones, Peru, Greece, Egypt, and the lost continent of Atlantis. A training level set in Lara's home of Croft Manor can be accessed from the start menu. The game is presented in third-person perspective, Lara is always visible, and the camera follows the action by focusing on Lara's shoulders by default, but the player can take manual control of the camera to get a better look at an area. The game automatically switches to a different camera view at key points, either to give the player a wider look of a new area or to add a cinematic effect to it. In the Sega Saturn and PlayStation versions, players save their progress in a level using save crystals, while in the PC versions, the player can save at any point. If Lara is killed, the player must restart from a previous save. The object of Tomb Raider is to guide Lara through a series of tombs in other locations in search of treasures and artifacts. On the way, She must kill dangerous animals and creatures while collecting objects and solving puzzles. The emphasis lies on exploring, solving puzzles, and navigating Laura's surroundings to complete each level. Movement in the game is varied and allows for complex interactions with the environment. In addition to standard movement using tank controls, Laura can walk, jump over gaps, shimmy along edges, roll, and swim through bodies of water. Certain button combinations allow Lara to either perform a handstand from a hanging position or execute a swan dive. 
which again, going back, that was one of the huge things I remember doing was like setting up a character to a different pose to get in water and getting that kind of swan dive animation to get there. And now Laura has two basic stances, one with weapons drawn and one with her hands free. When her weapons are drawn, she automatically locks onto any nearby targets. Locking onto nearby targets prevents her from performing other actions which require her hands, such as grabbing onto ledges to prevent falling. By default, she carries two pistols with infinite ammo. Additional weapons include a shotgun, dual magnums, and dual Uzis. A general action button is used to perform a wider range of movements, such as picking up items, pulling switches, firing guns, pushing or pulling blocks, and grabbing onto those ledges we talked about. Items to pick up include ammo, small and large medipacks, keys, and artifacts required to complete a stage. Any item that is collected is held onto in Laura's inventory until it is used. Throughout each stage, one or more secrets may be located, and discovering these secrets is optional, and when the player finds one, a tune plays. The locations of these secrets vary in difficulty, uh, very much like in any game at this time. You're going to have some that are kind of a little easier to peek out, and like you feel like achieving it into others. Got to go in that online game guide. You got to go online, figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's one of the, I think, most challenging parts about games from this era is when they want to keep something secret, it's like you have to have so many, I, I think, insane hours with this, and you have to be willing to explore every nook and cranny that you can. It totally depended on how patient you were and how much you really loved the game to be willing to find some of those secrets. Yeah, it really adds so much to it, to that, this, this era of gaming. And I'm not saying it's a cheap way for them to put more content or like more replayability into it, but it was kind of like a standard of like, okay, we've made the levels. Let's add like some extra bits to get them to explore more. Yeah, I, me personally, I never particularly cared for that style of, of design within games. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't trying to find every single little secret ever. I appreciated little bonuses, like in Mario 64, how if you got all the stars, the Yoshi would come. I thought that that was great. You know, sure. that's a cool, cool little bonus thing that rewards you for going the extra mile. And not only did you beat Bowser, because you don't need nearly all the stars to do that, but you did get all the stars anyway. Here's the Yoshi. Yeah, I think this is much more akin to the FPS action-adventure platforming genre, especially Doom, having a lot of those kind of things in there, getting like secret power-ups or secret health um, that we see in Wolfenstein, Doom, Duke Nukem, who kind of takes on those ideas later on. Um, it, it's kind of a continuation from there. So obviously, all those great iconic gameplay elements... This game has a little bit of a story, of course, probably a little bit more, I would say, of a story than some of the other games from this era, mm -hmm. but still not quite as fledged out as some of the stuff that we see today. But let's talk about it a little bit. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lara Croft is approached by a mercenary named Larson, who is working for businesswoman Jacqueline Natla. Natla hires Lara to acquire the Scion, a mysterious artifact buried in the tomb of Qualipec within the mountains of Peru. After recovering the Scion from Qualipec's tomb, Lara is ambushed by Larson, who reveals after his defeat that she is holding merely a piece of the artifact, and Natla has sent rival treasure hunter Pierre Dupont to retrieve the other pieces. Breaking into Natla's offices to find out Pierre's whereabouts, Lara discovers a medieval monk's diary and learns that the scion is a powerful artifact composed of three pieces, which were divided between the three rulers of the ancient continent of Atlantis. And one of these pieces is buried alongside former Atlian ruler Teokin, beneath an ancient monastery, St. Francis Folly in Greece. Navigating the monastery and following several firefights with Pierre, Lara locates the tomb of Teokin, where she finally kills Pierre and recovers the second piece of the scion he had taken. From a mural, she learns that Teokin unsuccessfully tried to resurrect Atlantis after a catastrophe struck the original continent. After combining both pieces of the scion, Lara is shown a vision that reveals the third and final piece of the scion was hidden in Egypt after the third Atlantean ruler, a traitor who used the artifact to create a breed of monsters, was captured and imprisoned by Teokin in Qualipec. Making her way through Egypt to the lost city of Kamun, Lara kills Larson and recovers the third scion piece. Emerging from the caves, Lara is ambushed by Natla and her three henchmen, who take the scion. Lara escapes and stows away aboard Natla's yacht which takes her to a volcanic island holding an Atlantean pyramid filled with monsters. After dispatching Nala's henchmen and making her way through the pyramid, Lara finds the scion and sees the rest of the vision, revealing Nala to be the betrayer. Lara faces Nala, who reveals that she intends to use her army to push forward humanity's evolution, as she believes both Atlantis and current civilization are too soft to withstand disaster. Lara decides to destroy the Scion, and Nala's attempt to stop her sends her into a crevice. After fighting a large, legless monster, Lara shoots the Scion, setting off a chain reaction that begins to destroy the pyramid. Lara kills a winged Nala and escapes the exploding island. So some might say all for naught. But it, um, it very reminiscent, I think, of, yeah, that like Indiana Jones-style explorer-adventurer archaeologists mm-hmm. type of where they're trying to incorporate some real world mystery you know uh, th- whatever it was I, I feel like in the 90s we had this big fascination with like mummies and ancient curses and things like that so i feel like this yeah really sort of falls in line with that yeah and it, it very much follows kind of that trope of you know, they're kind of freelance. They're really in it for the passion, 
And that's why they pick it up a lot of times, even though there's promise of like, oh, you're going to get paid by this person. They're going to take care of it. But you're still in it because they are very much like Indiana Jones, such nerds about ancient culture that they're like, oh, I know all about this stuff. I just happen to also want to go do it. So that was, like you said, like the era of it, like the mummy, Indiana Jones, Laura Croft, all these things kind of mixing together, building up a story that all reminiscent of each other, but still satisfying nonetheless. So for the music and sound aspect of Tomb Raider, it was composed by Nathan McCree, who at the time was an in-house composer for core design. The main inspiration behind the score for McCree was English classical music. This approach was directly influenced by his conversations with Gard about Laura's character. Based on this, he kept the main theme simple and melodic. The main theme uses a four-note motif, which continues to appear through the series. The piece, Where the Depths Unfold, used when Laura is swimming underwater, was a choral work. They did not have the space or budget for live music recording, which was challenging for McCree as he needed to create the whole thing using synthesizers. To make the choir sound realistic, he inserted recordings of himself breathing at the right points so it sounded like an actual choir. For each track, McCree got a basic description of where the music would be used, then was left to create it. There was no time for rewrites, so each track was included in the game as first composed. Unlike most other games of the time, there was not a musical track playing constantly throughout the game. Instead, limited musical cues would play only during a specifically selected moment to produce a dramatic effect. For the majority of the game, the only audio heard is action-based effects, atmospheric sounds, and Laura's own grunts and sighs, all of which were enhanced because they did not have to compete with music. According to McCree, the game was scored this way because he was allotted very little time for the job, forcing him to quickly write pieces without any thought to where they would go in the game. When the soundtrack was finally applied, the developers found that the tunes worked best when applied to specific areas. AKA, didn't have much time, didn't really work with where we think they're going to go, <laughs> but they work over here. Now, the symphonic sounds were created using Roland Corporation's Orchestral Expansion Board, for their JV series keyboard. So if you're out there, you know, an LC fan, some might say, thinking, man, I really want to recreate this time crunch music. Oh boy, do I have the keyboard for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, that's what this podcast is here for. We, uh, Roland, can you uh, send us our check, please? You're late. <laughs> yes. Can you send us your board from 96 <laughs> they were using that's clearly yeah. still in production? Thank you very much. No, it is interesting that the time crunch made the soundtrack for the game sort of be programmed into it this way. Just because I think typically in other games, when something like that happens, they just try and create something that can be cycled mm -hmm. and you don't really have to worry about like any particular start and end point. And once it kind of starts, it starts and you're just in it. And that's, that's what it is for that particular area. But for this, I mean, to only have it queue up in specific moments, um, it can it can be a little, I think, dry sometimes. I, I feel like I appreciate music and sound quite a bit in video games. And so to have moments where you just don't have that stuff, it, it makes the game feel a little emptier at times. 
Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Where There's very few games that can do it, and even very fewer cinema pieces that can do it, unless you're like an indie house film, where it actually works. Because otherwise, you, like you said, it feels empty. You feel alone, which can work, especially in horror games. Whenever you hear like the deep breathing, and that's it. Yeah. Maybe atmospheric drips of water or something else, and there's no music cues for it. That's where I think we see it most. But in a platforming action adventure, there's at least something usually going on. Um, however, I will say for the most part, Tomb Raider did, it worked. It worked for where it needed to be. So in addition to the music, of course, there was also a voice actress that they needed for Laura, and that was English voice actress Shelley Blonde. And she was given the job after her agent called and had her record some audition lines onto tape. She felt under a lot of pressure at the time, as Core Design had spent three months searching for the right voice. And she recalled, quote, I was asked to perform her voice in a very plain, non-emotive manner and in a female bond type of way. I would have added more inflection, tone, and emotion to my voice, but they wanted to keep it how they felt it should sound, which was quite right. My job was to bring their character to life. According to Blonde, she spent four to five hours recording the voice for Lara, including the grunts, cries, and other effort, as well as death sounds. A different account attributes these sounds to Gibson. Core Design's PR manager Susie Hamilton and sound designer Martin Iveson, whose voice pitch was made higher. Blonde would not return for any subsequent entries. In a 2011 interview, she stated that her departure was due to disagreeing with some things with Core Design and Eidos. However, in a 2016 retrospective interview, she said that she was asked to reprise her role but had to decline due to other commitments. She gave permission for her effort voice work to be reused while the character's dialogue would be voiced by Judith Gibbons. So that's interesting. We, we've had some things recently with voice actors really come into the forefront, like in the Bayonetta 3 debacle. Mm-hmm. And so there's definitely precedent for disagreements between voice actors and how much they really give to... Um, a game and a character and, and what they deserve in terms of compensation and things like that. But it sounds like from Blonde's perspective, they weren't ever really on the same page to begin with. Yeah. Yeah, even in just that first dialogue you gave us of like, I did it plain and flat. I wanted to add more to it and be emotive and make it a character. But, you know, I, I did it for what they wanted. You know, almost almost that very passive-aggressive like, <laughs> this was not my best performance, but I did what they wanted me to do. Well, if it's if she's getting any kind of direction, like what it seemed like they envisioned for Laura Croft, which was basically 80s action superhero type of thing, like a mm-hmm. where they've got these insane proportions and it's supposed to just be like a generic anybody can look up to this person role. You could see where they don't want to make it too characterized. Sure. And they absolutely. were maybe even a little scared to to do too, too much just because this was really the early foray into female protagonists as far as video games go. So I could kind of see it from both sides. And obviously they decided to give her a little bit more of a personality later in the future. And it was, I mean, it's tough at this time. I mean, how do you do it without also caricaturizing her at times? like being like overtly over the top that you know that this is a female lead and she's 
this way or that way. It was much more of, like you said, like the Bond-esque style of just calm, cool, collected. I know I'm in a perilous situation, but I'm going to get out of this. It worked. Yeah, you don't want a character. There's a fine line, especially in these types of games where there's not a lot of room for a lot of that characterization in the space anyway, and you don't want to end up accidentally making a Duke Nukem if you don't mm-hmm. mean to do that. Yeah. Yeah, a, a comedic piece that has no rhyme or reason to be comedic just wouldn't work. Now, as far as releases go, Tomb Raider was first confirmed in 1995, although details were kept scarce by the developers. There was little attention from the press until a demo was run at the 1996 E3, causing the press and public to pay more attention. There was a huge amount of publicity, much of which did not involve the core design team at all, which prompted mixed feelings. While the scale of the game's eventual popularity was not in the team's minds, its strong reception at gaming events hinted that it would be a success. To help promote the game, Eidos hired models to portray Laura Croft at trade events. They first hired Natalie Cook, but apparently due to her unsuitability with Eidos' cross-media plans for the character, she was replaced with Rhonda Mitra in 1997, and Mitra served as Laura Croft's model until 1998. And now after the initial release, PC patches allowed the game to work on Windows 95. Oh la la, back then we're getting some higher-end PCs going, Derek. (laughs) (laughs) Oh baby. And then the PC version was eventually released on Steam later in the future, on November 29th, 2012. And an attempt was made by Realtek VR to remaster the first three Tomb Raider titles for Windows, but due to not having asked permission from then-franchise owner Square Enix first, the project was unfortunately canceled. In 1997, four new levels were released in an expansion pack for the Windows version, known under the title Tomb Raider Unfinished Business. The expansion pack also came with promotional materials for the game's sequel, Tomb Raider 2. In 1998, the levels were made available as downloadable content for the Windows release, and a budget version was released on March 20th of 1998, containing both the original game and the additional levels under the title Tomb Raider Gold. Production on these new levels was led by Phil Campbell, a newcomer who was transferred to Core Design after another project was canceled. The two new areas were dubbed Unfinished Business, set within the ruins of the Atlantean Pyramid, and Shadow of the Cat, which saw Lara exploring a temple in Egypt dedicated to the goddess Bastet. Unfinished Business was intended as an alternate, more difficult finale to the game, featuring more mutant enemies and a focus on complex platforming. The concept for Shadow of the Cat was born from a cat statue used in the Kamun level with the levels being themed after a cat's nine lives. Due to licensing issues, several later re-releases excluded the gold content. The game was released for macOS on March 16, 1999. It was ported to the platform by Aspire and based on Tomb Raider Gold. A port to the Pocket PC was published by Handango in July 2002, and it released on the N-Gage in October 2003. Both ports were developed by IdeaWorks 3D. Tomb Raider was ported to iOS devices developed and published by Square Enix, and the port was released on December 13, 2013, and includes additional levels of the gold release. 
This version released on Android devices on April 1st, 2015. Always questionable when you release things on April 1st, 2015, but hey, man, (laughs) you do you. Not necessarily 2015, just April 1st in general. We don't... Take me back, baby. Take me back to 2015 at this point. Anyway, <laughs> we had uh, some risque patches come out. Uh, one, what? The, Who one would have thought th- that anyone would do this? How With the could ridiculous they? proportions. How could they do it? We had Nude Raider. An infamous part of Tomb Raider's history is a fan-made software patch dubbed Nude Raider. The patch, when added to an existing PC copy of a Tomb Raider game, caused Laura to appear naked. During the original game's production, a cheat code was suggested to Guard and Douglas, but they strongly vetoed it. In 1999, Core Design considered taking legal action against websites that hosted nude pictures of Laura Croft, stating that, quote, We have a large number of young fans, and we don't want them stumbling across the pictures when they do a general search for Tomb Raider. In April of 2004, it was falsely alleged that an insider from Eidos reported to a Tomb Raider electronic mailing list that Eidos had begun suing players using the Nude Raider patches. Eidos sent cease and desist letters to the owners of the NudeRaider.com URL that hosted the patch to enforce its copyright of Tomb Raider. Sites depicting nude images of Laura Croft have been sent cease and desist notices and shut down, and Eidos Interactive was awarded the rights to the Nude Raider domain name. As a response to the controversy, Core Design included a secret code in the sequel, allegedly a similar nude code. It, in fact, blew Laura up. So, um, went the other way with it. Went uh, very violent, where it's like, oh, we got that secret code, Timmy. Let's go put it in. <laughs> we got to get it. And she blows up. So, you know, this is still early in the era where we don't know what Rule 34 is yet. I think it's it's coming to be part of internet vernacular, but this is kind of some of the first stuff that happens, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, again, not shocking. Not shocking just based on uh, the newness, really, of this whole thing and the sure. mostly male audience of gaming, I think, at the time. And, um, yeah, I mean, they did the right things. They did the things that they could to try and combat that stuff. But at the same time, uh, there was definitely intent behind the proportions and things that they use for Lara Croft. So they, they kind of brought some of that on themselves, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Upon its release in 1996, the game was widely praised by video game magazines for its variety and depth of control, revolutionary graphics, intriguing environments, and use of occasional combat to maintain an atmosphere of tension. Ryan McDonald of GameSpot summarized, Take the puzzle solving of Resident Evil, the gory action of Loaded, and the 360-degree freedom most gamers only dream of, and you have Tomb Raider, the closest thing to a Super Mario 64 killer to date. Tomb Raider was Computer Game Strategy Plus's 1996 overall game of the year and won the magazine's award for the year's best 3D action game as well. Electronic Gaming Monthly named Tomb Raider a runner-up for both PlayStation Game of the Year behind Tekken 2 and Saturn Game of the Year behind Dragon Force, commenting that both versions had been designed to take optimum advantage of each console's capabilities. They named it runner-up for both Action Game of the Year behind the Die Hard trilogy 
and Adventure Game of the Year behind Super Mario 64, as well as Game of the Year again behind Super Mario 64. That's some tough competition in Super Mario 64. Yeah, I mean, you have to figure this is really the year of the few years of like all of the Nintendo hits coming out for the N64. So, I mean, you're going to struggle behind all of that being like a third party kind of PlayStation exclusive. You know, you tried, but can't be can't beat the plumber. Mario's got his iconic characterization behind him already. People are Mm -hmm. excited for Mario in general, getting to play him in this 3D world. I just don't see how this game ever really stood a chance, but of course, successful in its own right. It did. And at release, Tomb Raider topped the British charts a record three times and contributed substantially to the success of the PlayStation. In the previous year, Eidos Interactive had recorded a nearly $2.6 million pre-tax loss. The success of the game turned this loss into a $14.5 million profit in a year. As one of the top-selling games of the PlayStation console, it was one of the first to be released on PlayStation's Platinum series, and its success made Tomb Raider 2 the most anticipated game of 1997. And by 97, 2.5 million units had been sold worldwide. In 1999, Next Generation listed Tomb Raider as number 22 on its top 50 games of all time, commenting that, quote, Fantastic level design and art direction enabled a real feeling of exploration and accomplishment. When you played Tomb Raider, you felt like a Tomb Raider. In 2001, GameSpot listed Tomb Raider on its 15 most influential games of all time, saying it served as a template for many 3D action-adventure games that would follow and help drive the market for 3D accelerator cards for PCs. In 2004, the official UK PlayStation magazine chose Tomb Raider as the fourth best game of all time. It won a multitude of Game of the Year awards from leading industry publications. In 1998, Tomb Raider won the Origins Award for Best Action Computer Game of 1997, and in 1999, Toby Gard and Paul Douglas won the Berners-Lee Interactive BAFTA Award for Best Contribution to the Industry for their work creating the franchise. The sequel to the game, Tomb Raider 2, was in the concept stage as production of Tomb Raider was wrapping up. Under pressure from Eidos Interactive, Core Design would develop a new Tomb Raider annually between 1997 and 2000, putting considerable strain on the team. Their struggles culminated in the troubled development of Tomb Raider The Angel of Darkness for PlayStation 2. Releasing to poor critical reception and lackluster sales, Eidos Interactive transferred the franchise to another development studio they owned, Crystal Dynamics, who would reboot the series in 2006 with Tomb Raider Legend. Following the release of Tomb Raider, Lara Croft herself became a gaming icon, seeing unprecedented media cross-promotion. These included commercials for cars and foodstuffs, an appearance on the cover of The Face, and requests for sponsorship from outside companies. The level of sophistication Tomb Raider reached by combining state-of-the-art graphics, an atmospheric soundtrack, and a cinematic approach to gameplay was at the time unprecedented. While Gard enjoyed working at Core Design, he wished to have greater creative control, and disliked Ido's treatment of Lara Croft in promotional material, which focused on her sexuality at the expense of her in-game characterization. Gard and Douglas left Core Design in 1997 to found their own studio, confounding factor. This prompted mixed feelings from remaining core design staff, who were already at work on the next title in the series. 
Speaking in 2004, Guard said he would have liked to produce a sequel, but noted that Laura had changed from his original concepts for her, leaving him unsure of how he would handle her. Guard would eventually return to the franchise with Tomb Raider Legend. After the release of Legend, Crystal Dynamics created a remake of Tomb Raider using the Legend engine and continuity. Guard acted as one of the story designers, fleshing out both the main narrative and Laura's characterization. The remake was co-developed by Crystal Dynamics and Buzz Monkey Software. Titled Tomb Raider Anniversary, the game released worldwide in 2007 for PlayStation 2, Windows, PlayStation Portable, Xbox 360, and Wii. Fan interest in the game has continued since its original release. In 2016, developer Timur X. Proger Gagiev began work on Open Laura, an open-source port of the original Tomb Raider engine. The further development of this project enabled Tomb Raider to be ported to many modern and legacy systems, such as the 3DO Interactive Multiplayer, the Xbox, iPhone, and the Nintendo 3DS. In January 2022, a version for the Game Boy Advance was released, which attracted attention from several media outlets. And we see a lot of that. Um, We see a lot coming out of a bunch of different devs and a bunch of different sites that are creating these not even just the Laura games, but old ports for Game Boy, Game Boy Advance that you can buy today brand new to play on those retro systems. And, you know, for you and I, Derek, we grew up with it. So for us, we're like, ah, we've done that. But for kids who haven't, that's such a cool thing to buy a new piece of tech for a super old piece of tech and have it work and play in a different, like play it in that same style of it. So it's cool to see people be able to tap into this old, technologies old engines and recreate them for this this a new way to use them on older things well and that was kind of our dream i think back mm-hmm. when these games uh were the main uh, home console titles i mean to be able to take that stuff on the road you were getting game boy versions of games like this but they were always a fraction of what was on the more powerful home console version mm-hmm. so yeah, I guess it's sort of the same way now in that they could play Tomb Raider on the go today, um, but it's at a fraction of what they could be doing at home. But it's, a, I think, a unique experience and a way to just sort of play these simple, fun retro games with devices that you're familiar with. And especially when you consider that you can take modern consoles like a Switch or something like that on the go or mm-hmm. the Steam Deck, things like that, uh, but they're really expensive, you know? And, and if you don't want to do that, to have an option where a Game Boy Advance, something that you might just have lying around, you might be able to pick up at a thrift store and be able to sort of hack it and, you know, like kind of customize it, make it your own, I feel like is really interesting in and of itself. Mm-hmm. to have that option available to you and to have these developers who do this stuff for free. Yeah, I think it's amazing. The culture around it's so, so cool. But as we wrap this up, Derek, and as we get back to Laura Croft and her true goodness in 96, let the people know, why do we choose this game? What do you think of it? Tomb Raider has been hugely, hugely influential on a ton of games. I, I think similar to the Prince of Persia, series like we had mentioned earlier in the episode mm-hmm. it's just it's one of those games that it it's about exploring it's about climbing it's about doing 
these different elements of things where you're kind of combining, like you said, the James Bondness, the the super spy, along with like ancient mystery and lore, and it's just got so many different elements crawling out of it. And on top of that, having it all be done by a female protagonist, I think is is hugely significant and was a step in the direction of making that more okay and reaching out to a different type of audience to say, hey, we want you to play video games too. And I feel like that's really important. Oh, yeah. um, so this this game definitely did a lot, I think, in that regard. Me personally, as far as Tomb Raider goes, this was never really like my thing. I, I'm very familiar with Tomb Raider, just having grown up, I think, in this era. But as far as games go that I wanted to play, Tomb Raider just really wasn't ever on my radar in that same way like a Super Mario 64 would be. Sure. And so for me, I think this game is more of an influential type of game, not a game that I would go back and and look and think about the nostalgia and the great time that I had with it because I didn't. For me, it's kind of a 6 out of 10 in that regard. What about you? Yeah, I I think, again, this being this, at the time, third-party release that I watched my cousins play that ended up blowing up, and really that Sony contract was the downfall. It really was to put your team on crunch to basically like Assassin's Creed it and pump out one a year and saturate the market and just like not do as good as you could just because of those time constraints, I think really tore Tomb Raider out of what could have been a huge franchise. And we do see a bit of recovery with its later release, you know, in the the early 2010s. Um, But we could have seen more, I think. But as this game of, uh, as a whole stands, I think it works really well in that execution of, you know, third person, 3D adventure, platforming puzzle game. It sold. It did well. And for it to be one of those first PlayStation Platinum classics, you know, Platinum hit is, is huge. So if I had to give it a rating, it would be uh, the cool swan dive that I talked about before in the pool and spending far too much time in the manor because it's kind of cool looking and they use the manor later um, in the movie, which is really cool. And Indiana Jones also has something like that. So that's a comparison. Um, and then, but also you could think that, oh, manors, you know, you need a lot of money for that. So are they tomb rating for the money or are they tomb rating for the love of tombs? You know, we just, we might never know. And that's, that's the issue I think in today's society, we truly need to talk about uh, out of 10. It's pretty good. There's some valid mm-hmm. things in there. Oh, thank you very much. Kind of lost me at the end, but... Well, you know, like you got to keep up with it. Got to keep it rolling. <laughs> Research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for this episode was written and recorded, given to us by our friend Evan Barr, and our artwork was provided by Aaron Shattuck. As always, want to thank those beautiful people who support us, all of you listening right now, but also those who support us monetarily with our patrons. You can check us out on patreon.com slash finish the fight. Got plenty of physical and digital rewards, as well as a Minecraft server, various other things we got going on, and we're always trying to improve on it. So let us know if you are a patron, would like to be, if there's anything that you're looking to have or not have, or anything along those lines. But I want to thank a few select members today with Sky the Bear, Duststorm, Snide T-Bird, that LL Gamer Guy, Nick Hyman, Climbing Spork, Lee Tom John, Keller Kane, and Brian Yost. Thank you all so much for your support. 
This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, please drop us a review. It helps us out a lot, and we'd love to hear from you. And as always, you can catch us over on Twitch. You can see me at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That is twitch.tv slash S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. As well as Derek at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. That is twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're also on Discord. It is free to join. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time, talking general stuff, talking gaming, of course, talking TV shows, movies, art, music, pets, food, pretty much anything that you want or could think about. Come hang out with us. It's a lot of fun, and we'd love to see you there. And that is our wrap-up of Tomb Raider 96. Are there any other 3D adventure platforming games you think we should check out? Or do you think this is the pinnacle? There's nothing else that can combat it besides Glover. That was pause for effect. Everyone claps uh, in the audience. Um, Except Glover, because he doesn't have another hand. He does. A, he snaps. He's jazzed like that. <laughs> uh, so if there's any other games you want to see us do in this, this vein of game, let us know. Uh, be happy to take a look at it. As always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, Derek Baker. And this has been Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. <laughs>